Joan Karen. We're happy to have you with us for our program focusing on the Civil War. World Canvas is coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum on the campus of the University of Iowa, and the program is being recorded for statewide television and radio distribution over UITV and KRUI-FM 89.7. It will also be available, along with all programs in this series, as a free podcast on iTunes. And I'd like to thank our production partners, UITV, the Pentecrest Museums, KRUI, and Information Technology Services. Although more than 150 years have passed since the first bullets were fired in the U.S. Civil War, Americans retain a deep interest in the conflict, its causes, the major players, and the impact the war and our complicated history have on our national identity. We have a unique opportunity tonight to look at the causes of the conflict, to outline the major disputes that took the North and the South past the breaking point, and to consider how the war affected the lives of average citizens all over the country, with special attention to our predecessors here in Iowa. Joining me for this segment are, right next to me, University of Iowa history professor Leslie Schwamm. And uh, next to Leslie is the head of special collections and university archives, Greg Prickman. David McCartney is next to Greg. And David is university archivist here at the University of Iowa. And our final guest in this segment, very um, a special opportunity to have uh, Byron Preston with us. He designs most of the exhibits here in the Old Capitol and has designed the uh, exhibit on the lowest level of this building just now on the Civil War. So thank you, Byron, for being here. Thank you. Um, Leslie, I'd like to start with you. Big, big topic. Where do you begin when you uh, begin to think about the Civil War? Uh, what may have caused it? What elements of the, the uh, issues of the day still remain with us today? But um, I know that as an historian, you specialize in social history of the 19th century, and you teach courses on American slavery, the Civil War, emancipation and reconstruction, and so on. Um, so I think there's nobody better suited to give us an overview of this conflict that started so many years ago. Well, I thought I'd start the way I um, start with my students because I'm privileged to be able to teach a course here at the university every year on the history of the Civil War. And we always start out by simply talking about what our questions are. What questions do we have about the Civil War? And actually the students write down their questions and pass them in and I um, get a chance to look them over. And uh, the students who come into this history class ask the biggest questions, the biggest questions. They want to know, why does this war happen? They want to know if it was inevitable. Was it irrepressible, this war? They want to know if Americans really went to war over slavery. They want to know, did we go to war to protect or limit states' rights? Or they ask, did we go to war because some very powerful people persuaded a um, less well-educated mass that this was the only way to go? Were they the victims of propaganda somehow? Some of the students come into the course with a lot of knowledge about the Civil War, and they want to know, was there a good reason for 800,000 men to die? They want to know if there was a good reason for the Union to spend $6 billion to kill 94,000 Confederate men. Was there a good reason for the Confederacy to spend $2 billion to kill 110,000 Union men? Was there any reason good enough to send 45,000 men home with amputations? 
So they ask all these questions that really range from what caused it, what were the consequences, what were the costs of this conflict. And I think part of the reason they're so invested in these questions is is our contemporary issues with war and how we end up in war today. Now, I really appreciate that our show's focus today is on the rupture of war, because in my mind, that really does bring us home to Iowa, and it connects Iowa to this larger national story. Um, And that's because the war disrupted everything. It changed, for example, how people experienced citizenship, what it means to be the citizen of a nation. It forever changed the way uh, every person related to something called a federal government. That changed forever with the war. The war disrupted households. It disrupted household economies, the way bills were paid, the way money came into the house, who made those decisions about day-to-day budgets. The war disrupted those. The war also profoundly disrupted really personal issues about identity. It, It very deeply disrupted our ideas about what it means to be a man in the world and what it means to be a woman in the world. Um, And one of the best examples of that is to imagine these brave men volunteering, putting on uniforms, imagining that they're going to war to fight and discovering that the best thing they could do was to jump in a ditch. Let me hide from this gunfire. That challenged these men's ideas about what what masculinity meant. So the war disrupted people at a very individual level. And then the war also profoundly disrupted American ideas about race, about slavery, and about how these are connected to our ideas about freedom, our experience of freedom, and how we would define freedom. So these are you know, profound changes in day-to-day life and in you know, really big issues of how we relate to a nation, to a region, to each other. So what could have possibly caused these disruptions? What could lead us to the point where we have to experience them? Now, you know, I spend 16 weeks in a semester talking about all of this, so you'll excuse me if I, if I go very general here. But, you know, I can talk about four really general and interrelated themes that help bring us to the brink of war. One of these is the development uh, from the 1790s to uh, 1860 of very uh, rigid and opposed ideas about the North as a region and the South as a region. Now, these are ideas that people developed. They weren't imposed on them, but they're very interesting in how exaggerated and conflicted they become. So over the course of these decades, the North develops an image of the South as a land of slavery, even though 75% of Southerners didn't own slaves, and even though there were only 2,300 families in the South that owned more than 100 slaves. Nonetheless, we see developing in the 19th century this image uh, maintained largely by the North that the South was a land of slavery. 
On the other side, the South develops a notion of the North as a land of poverty, of urban decay, where workers were on their own. There was no one there to make sure that the working class was fed, was clothed, uh, had someone looking out for them. And of course, these two regions develop their own ideas about themselves. So the North begins to develop its, its um, strong identity with something called free labor, which is basically the idea that you could choose your employer, you could change jobs uh, at will, and there was no one who could prevent you from doing that. Now, in developing its identity as a region associated with free labor, is, this is fascinating, the North completely erases its own history of slavery. It erases the fact that there were slaves in the northern colonies and states uh, through the middle of the 19th century. That uh, enslaved people, when they finally uh, gained their freedom through these complicated gradual emancipation laws, were granted only partial freedom and were uh, given a status that no white person in the North was subjected to. Their mobility was restrained by law. They were banned from occupations. They were banned from public accommodations and schools. So the North develops this identity as a free place, and yet its own history is, is not necessarily one where everyone enjoyed freedom. And the South develops its identity uh, as a place where um, all social relations were based on the family and on the role of the father and the family and his responsibility for his dependence. And this is a very romanticized view that suggests everyone you know, is loved and well taken care of and, and that those who are dependents in the household, wives, children, enslaved people, well, were well cared for. We're not treated brutally, we're not beaten, we're not sold and separated from those they loved and everything they knew. So the regions developed these very incompatible images of themselves and of the other that make conversation and connection very challenging. The second major theme that I would talk about would be the complications of uh, expansion, of geographic expansion and the politics of geographic expansion. I'll remind you that in the decades leading up to the Civil War, um, the lands of indigenous people, of Native American people, were seized from them. Those lands became ultimately territories of the United States and then were admitted as states. And every time we went through this process, the nation had to make a decision would these be states where slavery was permitted or where slavery was excluded? And this was not simply a theoretical question, this was the basis of representation in Congress. This was uh, the basis of an economy, a Southern economy that most Southerners and Northerners believed had to expand or it would die out again because of plantation agriculture, staple crop agriculture. So expansion was an extremely vivid, important issue for Americans North and South. Tied into that is the challenge of democracy. 
how do we legislate public policy in a democracy? What are the rights of the minority? What are the rights of the majority? How do we balance those interests in our particular form of government? And then lastly, I would point to the ultimate failure of our political parties. By uh, the 1840s and the 1850s, the primary way that people expressed their formal citizenship was through the vote, meant white men of property voting, and political parties that at one time united the nation, that is, people joined a party north and south because they believed in limited government or expanded government, those parties became regional parties representing only the interests of a region. And when that happens, political parties no longer become a vehicle for uniting the nation. Instead, they split the nation. So all of these developments together bring us to the brink of war, and um, there are you know, three, there are many triggers that lead us to war. I would point to three things. One is, of course, the foundation of the Republican Party in 1854, which really culminates this association of political parties with one region's interests. The second thing I would point to would be a Supreme Court decision, Dred Scott versus Sanford. This was a Supreme Court decision um, in which uh, a, an enslaved man uh, brought suit that he was entitled to his freedom because he had resided for a, a great portion of his life in free territory, actually in Minnesota and Iowa uh, during parts of his life. So this case makes its way to the Supreme Court and the ruling of the court was profoundly significant because not only do they rule that Dred Scott is a slave, the Supreme Court rules that African Americans have no rights, no citizenship in the United States. And also dramatically, the court rules that Congress has no right to limit the expansion of slavery, that that's not within the powers of Congress. That leaves us without a way to reconcile, to compromise over the question of slavery. The third sort of trigger point that I would point to is um, the attack on Harper's Ferry. Uh, John Brown and the men, white and black men who accompanied him, um, attacking the federal armory in an effort to gain uh, munitions, which they hoped to distribute among slaves and to uh, go to the source to attack slavery at its source, hoping then that more slaves would join them in an uprising. This becomes a trigger point because it confirms everything the South suspected about the North that the North was sending provocateurs uh, into the South, trying to convince slaves to murder their, their owners, the, the people who had supposedly treated them so kindly. Um, it just persuaded the North that things had gotten out of, it persuaded the South that things had gotten out of, the, out of hand. And when Lincoln uh, is elected, the Republican Party uh, is victorious in the presidential election, it's, it just tips it tips the South into secession and um, inevitably war arises out of that. So these events are all integrated. There are many other um, contributing factors, uh, but you know, ultimately we end up with secession and then the firing on Fort Sumter in Charleston Bay um, and uh, the war begins. Now, 
in describing all of these events, I'm, I'm focusing a lot on slavery and how it shapes things. And we might think then, well, then Iowa is kind of distant from the causes of the war and what happens during the war. And I want to assure you that that's not the case. Um, there were um, slaves in Iowa. There were slaves in every state in the Union. There were slaves in Iowa. Uh, Bishop Loras, our uh, earliest territorial officials here in Iowa City, um, there were slaves held throughout Iowa, even though um, this was against the law. It was commonly known and, and practiced. It doesn't mean that there weren't abolitionists in Iowa, but there was also slavery in Iowa. Um, so slavery is an issue that is contended with throughout the history of our territory and our state. Um, when the war begins, um, we are, Iowa is connected to these events um, by the virtue of the fact that we send 76,000 men off to war in uniform. We organize 52 regiments of Union soldiers. Iowa actually hosts a black regiment, the 60th U.S. Colored Infantry as well. Um, so we're deeply involved in terms of uh, the willingness of Iowans to go to fight. We're also deeply involved through the women in the state, and that oftentimes gets overlooked, but Iowa women were profoundly active in the Civil War effort. Um, Annie Wittenmeyer comes to mind as someone who helped organize soldier relief, hospitals, nursing care, um, traveled into the South many times, um, and she was then supported by uh, thousands of local uh, Soldiers Aid Society. So women in Iowa were deeply involved. Uh, furthermore, uh, Iowa, although it was geographically uh, buffered from the battlefield, Iowa was uh, uh, visited by bushwhackers and Confederate guerrilla troops, so we didn't entirely escape uh, the battlefield. But all of these disruptions affected daily life in Iowa. All of them did, including, I want to emphasize, this question of slavery and race and freedom. Iowa becomes one of the key places where these issues are debated. Um, and I can talk about that yeah. more in the next yeah. segment. Uh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you for, for starting us off so uh, brilliantly here. Of course, a million questions yeah. arise as, as we hear you discuss these things. Now, we know that the North as a state, uh, the Iowa as a state fought with the North. Right. But this was not uniformly appreciated by Iowa citizens, oh, no. right? No, no. Um, there were uh, very strong pockets of, um, uh, of loyal opposition to the war, that is, people who supported the Union but were entirely opposed to the war. And then there were also a few pockets of people who thought the war was an incredibly bad idea. Um, and there were even newspapers whose editors you know, articulated these uh, right. beliefs. So right. there was definitely conversation in the state about whether the war was a good thing and a proper thing mm -hmm. and deserving uh, mm -hmm. of human sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And was there a strong debate in the country about, uh, particularly I think about a region like ours, which was somewhat removed from the most direct uh, argument, um, why not just let the South secede? I mean, they don't want to be with us anymore. Why not right. just and, and this, break it Thank off? you. Thank you. Because uh, one of the things that we tend to overlook in talking about um, the causes of the war is that most of these uh, Iowans, especially in the first two years of the war, were really committed to restoring the Union. 
They were not committed to going south to destroy slavery or to liberate African Americans. They believed in the Union. And so they fought against the idea that states could secede and to bring the southern states back into uh, the national embrace. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, this is a very important motivating factor that changes over time. Slavery becomes more important to Mm -hmm. the way Iowans uh, viewed the war, uh, largely as Iowa soldiers uh, begin to have contact with fugitive slaves in the South as they begin to rely on these fugitive slaves to do their cooking and their laundry in camp, as they realize these fugitive slaves were willing to sacrifice their lives for the Union cause. This also persuaded many Union soldiers that they may not believe in racial equality, but they began to see that slavery was a dehumanizing institution and that human beings deserve to be free. Oh, thank you. So that's uh, Leslie Schwamm, and we'll be talking to you more throughout the program. And I'd like to turn now to David McCartney and Greg Prickman and talk to you a little bit about the things we have collected in our university archives and the special collections um, from this period, whether personal letters back to families, whether, um, you know, other kinds of of items. Uh, Greg, let me just talk to you first about what we have here in our collection. Sure. Uh, We have a variety of of material. We certainly have... um very nice collections of letters and diaries. That's sort of very personal manuscript, handwritten um, types of documents. We have um, books that were published at the time, um, books that contain some of these debates. We have some of the newspapers uh, of the day, uh, the, the Harper's Weekly, um, famous for the, the, the graphic, uh, the, the, the illustrations that they provided from the front. Um, and we have those, um, that material can be very interesting to look through, too, because it, it shows you um, how you know, life goes on and the world goes on, even when something like this conflict is going on. Harper's is publishing accounts from battlefields, and, and they're serializing Charles Dickens at the same time. Um, and, but I think um, the, the letters and diaries um, are definitely our most direct link um, to the actual experiences um, and our closest means of getting in touch with how people were thinking and feeling uh, at the time. And, and I think, you know, about the, the, this idea of, of the big questions that come to mind. Um, in the letters and diaries, there are lots of little questions. It's, why haven't I gotten any of your letters? You know, uh, why aren't we moving anywhere? What are the generals doing? Uh, there's, why are they in the fields where the cotton is? Um, I mean, there's lots of this kind of back and forth. Um, and there are opinions expressed um, in letters being sent back home um, that are very direct. And, and, and I agree entirely based on, on what's in the letters we have that this notion of I'm going out uh, to fight for the Union was, was a major motivating factor. That's what people are expressing as they're writing um, when they're describing their experiences. It's all about the Union. Um, in, in many of the letters, there's very little mention of some of the other underlying causes. There's occasionally discussion of people, or they hear reports or newspapers get to them finally, um, where some of these editorials are, um, the Copperheads, the Democrats, writing that, you know, maybe this war isn't a great idea, um, and they comment on that uh, type of material. But um, you really... Um, when we have a sequence of letters, and we do in many cases, we have collections where we have 
you know, maybe dozens uh, of letters from an individual writing to someone, a family member, um, you get a real sense of narrative um, that, that carries through from letter to letter. Um, and you get a sense of their journey geographically. I mean, it, you know, many, we do have many collections of, of soldiers um, from Iowa. Um, we have material from people from other states as well, but um, the Iowa material um, gives you a good sense of that geography. We're sort of on the periphery uh, in terms of the north-south divide, but we're right on the Mississippi, and that's the direct route to St. Louis, which is then your, your route to the, to the front lines. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there are many accounts of people taking that route, uh, and then they're, they're staged at various camps along the way. And um, you can go through letter after letter, and it's basically one, you know, going to a big camp where they're mustered in, and they're trained, and then they go to another camp that's a little further afield, and there's lots of camp life, and the food, and the, you know, all of the horrible conditions and the boredom and tedium. And then all of a sudden, you're going through the letters and you get to the next one and they've been in the middle of a firefight and, mm -hmm. and there's this description of you know, the raining hell that they endured for hours. And it, it's, it's jarring because you're sort of lulled into this sense of the, the, the monotony of their mm -hmm. life in the military. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that is something that, that I had to be reminded of. There's a lot of what you might call downtime, where you're, right. you're just sort of encamped somewhere. You don't really know what the generals are planning, and you're just kind of there waiting to be told. And, uh, and I know that, David, you wrote a nice piece for the Press Citizen that appeared, I guess, yesterday, where you quoted a, a woman who was corresponding with her husband. And um, maybe you can just pick up on that story for us. Well, this was a family in southwestern Iowa, the Wilkerson family. The correspondence, I think, is just emblematic of the impact of the war, both at home and on the field. I don't think Leslie's uh, uh, statement about the impact of the war, the, the disruption of it, can be overstated. And I think it's reflected in, in the letters that came from a farmer who had been in the Hamburg, Iowa area in, I think, Fremont County or Page County, I'm not sure which, in mm -hmm. southwestern Iowa. He was assigned to, uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember now the, the uh, uh, cavalry number, but, uh, but he was assigned to an Iowa company in late 1864, he left behind uh, his wife and three children, uh, two children, one on the way. She was pregnant with their third child. She was left to tend to the farm. She writes about the farm duties that need to be done. He writes to her and expresses some, uh, some admonitions about you must sell the grain by this date, but do hold enough, uh, do hold enough uh, wheat over the winter, and he recommended a certain amount so that the family could continue to sustain itself. There was uncertainty uh, as much with the local economy in a supposedly removed area, an area removed from the hostility, such as Fremont County. There were uncertainties as well on the home front with regard to the local economy. And this correspondence exchange, I think, reflects that, uh, as well as, obviously, the the experiences that uh, Jesse Wilkerson experienced on the field. He traveled through, by his count, seven states. Uh, he logged about 5,000 miles. He survived the war, but ironically died several years later, apparently in a, a barroom fight or, or duel of, of some sort. It was a very telling way to gauge the experience of one family, and as Greg describes it, it allows you to trace, in a sense, the footsteps of, of uh, those uh, in, in that family, both from, from the field and, and on the home front. 
the, the economic experiences, the, uh, uh, the, the vocational experiences. Here's a young mother who suddenly needs to embrace uh, farm-related tasks that she didn't have to do uh, or was not expected to do uh, prior to his departure. And so you even get into the whole uh, uh, exploration of, of the role of gender in, mm-hmm. in the way war disrupts home and family life. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I believe you have another story you're going to tell us about. Is it about the governor? Um, you mean the uh, president of the, of the university? I'm oh, sorry. it was the university president, yeah. Tell I, us this other, this other uh, story about... Well, uh, again, Leslie made this point a few minutes ago about how this war touched places in, in Iowa uh, and in other venues in, in the north where you might not expect uh, this type of impact, and it certainly touched uh, Iowa City in the highest place possible with uh, regard to the university, which at that time was the uh, State University of Iowa. That was our official name up until about 1964. Uh, but in, uh, in 1862, about, uh, I think about uh, two years after Silas Totten arrived in Iowa City. Um, he became embroiled in this uh, sectional uh, division. Silas Totten was uh, the, the uh, second president of the State University of Iowa, uh, but the first to actually set foot on Iowa soil. His uh, predecessor, Amos Dean, uh, purportedly never came to Iowa. He ran the university, the fledgling institution in uh, absentia. Uh, the University of Iowa didn't even hold classes until 1855, about eight years after the, the uh, new Iowa legislature had, uh, the General Assembly of the Iowa legislature had established it as its uh, second act in uh, 1847. There was a long period of time of, of, uh, of dormancy with the university as it uh, uh, acquired land, uh, or rather uh, attempted to sell land in order to raise funds to uh, establish this campus. And that took years. Uh, and Amos Dean did not remain very long in that position. There were a number of, uh, of uh, conflicts that arose both, uh, uh, no big surprise, but among legislators and uh, mm-hmm. uh, from the governor's office. And when Silas Totten came in as the uh, second president, he inherited a very, very tenuous situation for the university. So the, 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 the climate in Iowa City by the early 1860s was very, uh, very uncertain anyway. Uh, but to, of course, add this entire uh, element of national conflict uh, only further, uh, further uh, exacerbated that. There are, there are a couple of published accounts about this, and it's, uh, uh, if I may read uh, yeah. a passage from uh, the uh, uh, January 1912 issue of the Iowa Alumnus, uh, recent at the time graduate of the State University of Iowa, had written a passage about this uh, episode uh, at the 50th anniversary of, of the incident. Um, and I'll read from uh, Theodore Wanneris's uh, narrative here just uh, for, uh, for a moment. In those days, Iowa City and vicinity had a large group of Southern sympathizers. Street demonstrations which students joined were a frequent occurrence. The so-called Copperhead or Southern Element wore badges to show their sympathy for the South. Here in Johnson County, President Totten and his family were unfortunate in becoming involved in this sectional feeling. Although of quiet disposition, President Totten was a man of firm convictions, and it soon became known that he and his family were in sympathy with the South. 
He tried to force his beliefs upon no one, but the mere fact that he had such convictions brought the distrust and ill feeling of many people against him. The unfortunate situation was further aggravated when Richard Totten, his son, who was a student in the university at the time, took part in one of the street demonstrations and from a raised platform burst forth in fiery denunciation against the North. For this, he was pursued by an angry crowd from which he escaped, never to return to Iowa City again. Um, this is a published account. Keep in mind, we're not uh, quite certain whether all of the details are, are accurate, but uh, there, there is some uh, veracity to it. Uh, to continue with uh, Mr. Waters' uh, piece, this incident and the general state of public opinion combined with a lack of university funds and the consequent reduction of salaries no doubt had much to do with the resignation of Dr. Totten on August 19, 1862. Um, we have his resignation letter at the archives, <laughs> and he makes a rather cryptic reference to the incident. He doesn't get into any, uh, any real detail as he submitted his resignation, except to say private reasons not necessary to mention here. <laughs> so probably some things were best left unsaid. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll move to Byron here in just a second, but I wanted you to briefly mention your DIY project because people can find these materials online. That's right. All of our uh, Civil War diaries and uh, letters have been digitized. They're online. Um, you can find them in a variety of places um, on the University Library's website. But um, one of the projects that we undertook with these letters was to um, try to get them transcribed um, because basically once they, we had them digitized, we just had pictures of letters. Um, but by transcribing them, we can search the text. And so we created a site where we invited volunteers um, from anywhere, from all over, to transcribe the text of these letters. And um, that project went very well. We had people participating from all around the world. Um, and the Civil War materials actually nearly finished uh, in terms of being transcribed, over 14,000 pages of uh, material. So we've expanded that effort into other uh, areas, manuscript cookbooks and some other types of diaries and letters. But um, uh, it's searchable now and it's all available online so anyone can uh, visit those sites to read the material. You're also, of course, always welcome to come into Special mm -hmm. Collections and see the material firsthand. Mm -hmm. And it's a really wonderful way to involve the research community and, and uh, those who have worked online with these documents have actually exchanged information among themselves, mm -hmm. and it's been a, a really wonderful experience yeah. for them. Wonderful. Well, thank you, both of you. And Byron yeah. Preston, uh, let me ask you to tell us what you have in your exhibit downstairs and, and how, how you created it, what story you were trying to tell. Well, one of the challenges we faced in this huge, complex event that took place over thousands of miles and infected millions of people was how to boil it down and sort of look at the, the everyday small scale of what these men and women went through. Uh, I've always been a firm believer in the, the old adage, uh, rich man's war, poor man's fight. And history from the bottom up is, is, I think in a lot of ways, a lot more interesting than generals and big and grand schemes. And when the grand schemes boil down, it's uh, a guy from Iowa taking a shot at a farm boy from Mississippi. Uh, in the heat of July outside Vicksburg is what it all boils down to. Um, so having said that, I started to look around and uh, we decided to focus on, on people that had been students at the U of I or were from eastern Iowa. Uh, some of them made it back uh, without any problems. Some of them uh, didn't make it back. 
and some of them made it back broken. Um, so it isn't it isn't a rosy rosy picture of the war and what happened to these these young men and women. Um, but that aside, we um, we decided to look at, at small personal artifacts of the everyday life of these soldiers and what they came and uh, they encountered. And I found that oftentimes the smallest artifacts would have the largest stories to tell. Um, one of the ones that comes to mind is uh, a collector here in town had a ID badge from the 17th Iowa Infantry. Now, um, this was a Civil War dog tag, so to speak. Dog tags weren't really issued by the government until World War I and really came into prevalence in World War II to identify casualties on the field. Uh, one of the great fears in 19th century America warfare was that you would die in a far-flung place and your family would never know what happened to you. Uh, these low ID badges were engraved by professional firms and were available through Leslie's and Harper's Weekly. And you could send away and get them if you knew you were going to be shipped out. And you could, uh, you could buy them from sutlers at the front and engrave your name and regiment number and you know, home dress and things like that, and you would pin it to your word around your neck. Uh, so if an event the worst happened, uh, your family would know what became of you. Uh, uh, prior to the, prior to the uh, federal attack at the Battle of Cold Harbor in 1864, which had more casualties, I believe I'll probably get corrected on this, but it had more casualties in 30 minutes than all of the first day of D-Day, uh, Pennsylvania soldiers and their comrades sat down, wrote their names, pieces of papers, and had their messmates pin it to their backs because they knew they were going into a hopeless charge. So this little ID tag is approximately an inch and a quarter large, but it has such a huge story behind it, and it opens up to really a very poignant chapter. Um, in doing research for the exhibit, I discovered, it su surprised me, that, that uh, of all the federal soldiers buried in uh, national cemeteries, Shiloh, Vicksburg, and the like, 42% are unidentified or labeled as unknown. Their families never did know what happened to them. Yeah. Wow. Um, the, for those of you who don't know the setup in this building, the exhibit can be seen on the lowest level here in the Old Capitol Museum. And uh, you have a number of muskets and, um, uh, you know, um, artillery shells mm -hmm. and whatnot there, um, personal letters, stories of miserable conditions in prison camps and so on. So there is an awful lot to see there. And there are a number of events that will be held all the way through this spring semester that uh, you can find on the Old Capitol Museum website. Um, here in February, there are four uh, talks. Um, a talk with the African American Museum of Iowa curator Lynn Coos on the Underground Railroad and African Americans in the Civil War. Um, a film screening of Glory will be held on uh, February 7th. Uh, February 21st, um, Beyond Racism, African Americans in the Civil War and the Struggle for Civil Rights in Iowa, and, um, and then a uh, talk with uh, David Cannon on uh, February 28th, Iowans Who Fought Against the Union, and that's only a little bit of, of uh, what will be coming up here. Uh, so if you're interested in hearing any further discussion about these things and certainly seeing the exhibit um, downstairs, please take advantage of it. As, as we leave, Byron, is there any one thing you would like to draw people's attention to in the exhibit? I could be morbid and say the bone saw, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, the bone saw? Oh. I, I, I think, I think it, it's, all, it's all interesting to me, and it all has a story, and there's some, there's some pretty, pretty nice biographies of, of local, local boys and what happened to them. 
Yeah. Oh, and, and I would like to have perhaps both you and um, Leslie speak to the title of this exhibit you have downstairs. Go on to see the elephant. It, it's, it, it was a common term used, and not specifically to the Civil War, but I, I first run across it in the gold rush period. And it refers to the 1840s is about the time when P.T. Barnum is getting started, and he brings elephants over to the United States, which no one has ever seen before. So to, when you say, I've gone to see the elephant, means you have seen something you have never seen before, mm -hmm. whether it be the gold fields of California or, yeah. or experience in the Civil War. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much. What a, what a great opener you guys have given us. Thank you. Um, we'll see Leslie a little bit later. Please say thank you to our guests. Thanks. Thank <laughs> so this is World Canvas, and I'm Joan Kerr. Thank you for joining us for this program on the Civil War. If you'd like to see or hear this program again, there'll be multiple viewing and listening opportunities available. You can find them all at our website, which is international.uiowa.edu slash worldcanvas. And uh, joining me on stage here now are three uh, very special guests. Just next to me is John Rayburn. Uh, next to him is Kathleen Diffley. And Ed Folsom is at the end. And I thank you all for coming. Um, John Rayburn is an emeritus professor of American studies here at the university. Kathleen Diffley is an associate professor of American literature at the university. And Ed Folsom is Carver professor of American literature also at the university. And um, I think I'm going to start with Kathleen. Nice to meet you. Thank you for coming. And um, I know that much of your recent work has involved the emerging magazine culture, that kind of mid to late 19th century. Um, tell, us, tell us what you're looking into there and what you've discovered about the Civil War stories being carried through magazines. You know, the question that got me started looking at periodicals was the one that vaguely, only vaguely circulated when I was going to graduate school. That is, was the Civil War unwritten? How could it be? We have a whole afternoon today about the rupture of civil war. How could people not notice? And so it struck me that it was possible they were looking in the wrong places. It also struck me as odd that in American literary circles, it was very easy to make a leap from the Scarlet Letter to Huckleberry Finn to skip the Civil War altogether and to move from Hawthorne's sense of a new American alphabet, that A on Hester Prynne's chest, to um, Huckleberry Finn and a sense of a new American language, those colloquial stretchers. Somehow the 1860s didn't count, didn't even shimmer. And so I thought, people must be looking in the wrong places. There's got to be some trace. And as it turns out, in the United States, quite a number of magazines were founded end of the 18th century and then into the 19th century. Some magazines that are still with us today, uh, Harper's, began as Harper's New Monthly Magazine in 1850. The Atlantic began as the Atlantic Monthly in 1857. Both, it turns out, carried quite a few Civil War narratives. So did quite a few other magazines. You already heard about Harper's Weekly. Harper's Weekly had lots of political commentary, lots of illustrations. That's what sold the magazine. But so too, it had well over 100 Civil War stories. One of the really interesting things, however, is that it wasn't just reasonably familiar, still fairly well-known periodicals that circulated during the 1860s and 70s, that is, between the fall of Fort Sumter in 1861 and the end of Reconstruction in 1876, 1877. 
During that period, lots of magazines across the country were founded and then folded. And in some of those magazines, especially in the South and the West, more peculiar stories turn up about odder people in stranger places, like a pawn shop owner in D.C. who turns out to be a Southern spy, or an abolitionist parson in Kansas, or an old colored woman who gets on a bus that is a horse car in Boston, and nobody will get up to give her a seat until one black soldier looks up from his book and says, here, ma'am, have mine, and shames everybody else in the bus. What's really interesting about this story is that it turned up in a magazine that Frederick Douglass edited during the 1870s. Many people know that Frederick Douglass, a well-known abolitionist and self-emancipated slave, edited magazines before the Civil War, like Douglass's Monthly and the North Star. But he also edited this less well-known magazine called The New National Era that was published in Washington, D.C. from 1870 to 1874. He edited for a couple of years, then turned the magazine over to his sons. The arc of the magazine was from the passage of the 15th Amendment, which guaranteed suffrage to African-American men, to uh, 1874, the year after the Panic of 1873, and the folding of the Freedmen's Bank in 1874. So it was very much caught up in its political moment, was actually a weekly rather than a monthly, and so less literary than politically engaged, full of speeches, full of essays, full of tables, among other things, but also, oddly enough, with three, four, five, six Civil War stories. And one of them was this story that actually wasn't written for uh, the New National Era, but was written instead for a magazine in Boston called Mary's Museum, which was a children's magazine edited at the time by Louisa May Alcott. And so you have to wonder, is this story about making room in a public place for an old colored woman the same story when it turns up in a magazine that Frederick Douglass edited or when it turns up in a magazine not written for the colored people of the United States, but instead for white children in New England? And those are the kinds of interesting questions that emerge when you start looking at periodicals. Here are three other things that are interesting. One is how much the North and the South, as charted in their periodicals, had in common. When you look at the sorts of things that are referenced without explanation, like biblical passages, or the names of songs, or food, like Washington cake, can be referenced in any old magazine without any explanation at all, because everybody knew what it meant. Equally, stories of the war that were published, say, in Harper's Weekly, could turn up in the Southern Illustrated News, published in Richmond. All that happened was a few names got changed, the names of places, the names of a sweetheart or a husband, same story. So, so the, the resonance of stories, north and south of the Mason-Dixon line, didn't seem to change much. The cultural register was much the same. That's interesting. Here's another interesting thing. When I began reading magazines, I figured I'd find lots of evidence of the House Divided, Lincoln's famous metaphor for the Civil War. In fact, those houses that um, embodied a brother-against-brother war were few and far between and tended to come up only in border territory, that is, in places like 
Western North Carolina, Eastern Tennessee, Maryland, Missouri, Kentucky. But aside from those few places and those few stories, what magazines across the country in the North, the South, and the West, places like Chicago and San Francisco, reveal is a house invaded. That is, by troops on the move, by guerrilla warfare, by the need for hospital service, or simply by family loss. And here's the last thing that I find very interesting, especially because it was predicted not to exist. Daniel Aaron, who made famous the phrase, the unwritten war, said, the one thing Americans couldn't face in the 1860s and 70s was race, issues of race. And so I found it startling that in magazines that are trying to imagine new ways in which an American heritage of liberty and justice could be redefined, re-understood, race is a crucial component. And in many more magazines than the new national era and that old colored woman. Yeah. Wow, thank you, uh, Kathleen Diffley. Um, I want to move next to um, John Rayburn because I've asked him to talk a little bit about photography, which was very much coming into its own during this period. And obviously, I think we've all seen images, uh, photographic images from the Civil War era. And uh, I wonder if you can tell us something about the history of that. I'll try. Uh, as perhaps many of you know, photography was so-called invented in 19, or 1839. So it came uh, very soon before the Civil War 20 years later. The Civil War was not the first war to be photographed. Uh, that, prob that distinction probably goes to the Crimean War when a photographer named Roger Fenton uh, went to the Crimea with the British troops and photographed the, the, um, uh, the, the war in the Crimea with, uh, between Russia and, and uh, uh, Great Britain. But uh, something that hasn't been said and probably needs to be is that the American Civil War was, in a sense, the first modern war. It's the, it, it, it was a war in the, uh, of a, a citizen, ar enormous citizen armies, which Napoleon had started. But uh, the difference in the Civil War was that many of the uh, refinements, shall we say, of warfare, technological refinements of warfare, uh, came into effect. The, the Monitor and the Merrimack, the ironclad ships, uh, the Gatling gun, the railroad as uh, a way to move both men and material uh, quickly to the front. So the whole nature of war changed. It became much more mechanized and much, much larger armies. So the photography of the uh, American Civil War was really begun by Matthew Brady, and his name is by and large, still associated with most of it, a little bit deceptively because Brady had a cadre of photographers working for him. And uh, when the photographs appeared, they would appear under the byline photographed by Brady, which was more of a trademark than a credit. So basically, many people that worked for him uh, and made photographs, the photographs did not appear under their names. Some of them now have been ascribed to the proper person. But when they were published or when they appeared in the, in the, uh, during the Civil War itself and in the years shortly thereafter, uh, they had Brady's name attached to them. There were probably, I don't think anybody quite knows, 40, 50, 60 photographers at work during the course of the Civil War, most of them in the North. Uh, 
partly because photography was better developed in the North as a commercial enterprise, but also because the South was uh, being, being uh, embargoed, and so getting material for photography was difficult. Getting the chemicals that were needed uh, and so on were, were difficult to come by, so there's less photography by Southern photographers uh, during the war. At the end of the war, Brady had accumulated about 7,000 images, 7,000 negatives, and there are other collections of photographs by others. So it's a fairly substantial body of work that exists, that, that depicts uh, the Civil War. Now, um, uh, there were also itinerant camp followers, uh, photographers who would uh, set up their, their equipment uh, at a, where the men were camped and take photographs of the men for usually about a dollar a picture, uh, often tin types, which were printed on tin, and were thus fairly durable and could be sent through the mail to the people at home. So here's a picture of me in my uniform at camp so-and-so uh, uh, near the front. So those are, uh, make up another body of, of photography of, of the period. Um, the process of making these photographs was difficult. The cameras were large, probably about the dimensions of this, although bigger, of course, of this microphone, uh, and they would weigh 25 or 30 pounds. So they were not easily portable. You had to lug them about, schlep them about. Uh, they were wet plate photographs, so you had a glass plate, usually 8 by 10, something like that, which had to be coated with chemicals just before you shot. You would make the shot, and then you had to go and recode it and develop it immediately. So it's a very bulky process, very difficult process for a, a photographer to, to carry out, and of course militated against spontaneity because you, you, this procedure was so complicated. The photographers had to travel with a covered wagon that served as a darkroom uh, in, in order to accomplish this, both coding them beforehand and, and developing afterwards. Uh, developing the negatives afterwards. The cameras, uh, the lenses were very slow, and as was the film, very slow, in the sense that not, neither could capture motion. Everybody has seen photographs of their blurs because somebody moved. Uh, so uh, the, the, the photographers could only take photographs of stationary objects. Well, what this meant, of course, was that there are no combat photographs of the Civil War. We have no pictures of men in combat. The way there would be, to some extent, in World War I, but to a much greater extent in World War II, and then in subsequent wars, uh, video and so on have, have, have shown us uh, uh, people in combat. The great hopes that are always expressed that when we see what combat is really like, that will eliminate wars. People will no longer fight wars. Uh, alas, it doesn't seem to work. Uh, human beings have a remarkable ability to override uh, their first uh, sense of revulsion uh, to go on and do the same thing over again. Um, so uh, this process uh, produced these shots of primarily um, of ruined buildings, of battlefields where battles had been fought, sometimes, not always, but sometimes with bodies strewn about them, burial details, often African-Americans, uh, uh, 
collecting skeletal remains, sometimes months and months after the, the uh, battle had been fought, to uh, bury them. Uh, pictures of railroads, of trains carrying armaments and the men, of uh, artillery. So when, you, when we look at these photographs today, they seem rather boring because there, nothing's going on in them. And it takes a fairly practiced eye of someone like Leslie, I think, or, or Kathleen to look at the photographs and find in them the story that they're trying to tell. Now, all of the photographs came with a caption. Uh, and the photographers would write the captions. They were factual, but they were also, um, they were meant to direct the, the feelings and the responses of the viewers. So the captions would say things like a rebel, and I'll talk about one photograph in a moment, but rebel sharpshooter uh, uh, in his redoubt. Uh, and the caption would say uh, the, the, this rebel sharpshooter was shot and killed by Union troops uh, who were triumphant in this battle. Uh, so it was meant to reassure, I suppose, viewers that what was being depicted was in fact uh, something that was going to result in something positive occurring, which is the victory of the Union side uh, against the, the rebels. Um, one other thing we might notice about the, or we might note about the photographs is that uh, everybody here, I'm sure, has seen that famous painting by uh, Leutze of uh, Washington crossing the Delaware. It must be the, one of the most famous American paintings. Uh, that was painted in 1850. And that was kind of representation of war that painters had engaged in uh, uh, from uh, the, you know, the time of early modernity on, uh, in which the uh, concentration was on the, the uh, generals, were, was on dramatic moments, uh, moments that perhaps hadn't actually occurred, uh, but which symbolized something that the audience wanted to believe in. Well, with the uh, pictures of the Civil War, uh, first of all, we see as many, in fact, many more so-called enlisted men, as we see officers and certainly of, of generals. There are photographs of generals, uh, but by and large, the great majority of the people portrayed in these pictures uh, are men in their camps, sitting in their bivouacs. Uh, so it's a democratization of the representation of war, not just the, the big shots, but also the, 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 the grunts, uh, so-called grunts are being portrayed. And the heroism of war is certainly underplayed by these photographs. You look at these photographs and you have no sense of the kind of heroism that you see in the Leutze painting of Washington crossing the Delaware. The men in their uniforms look rather scruffy. They often look bored because they're sitting around their camps. Uh, it, it's not a heroic enterprise uh, in, their, in the way it's represented. There are two photographs I want to talk about in particular, and it's possible you've seen both of them. They've been reprinted often. And one is the one I just re uh, adverted to, which is by Alexander Gardner, home of a rebel sharpshooter. And it shows a man, a dead man, a corpse, lying in a kind of V-shaped uh, 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 enclosure 
uh, where he was, you know, hiding and, and trying to, to uh, uh, pick off uh, uh, Union soldiers. And he's shot um, in, this, uh, uh, in this place. This photograph is faked in, in the sense that Gardner moved the body of this man from another place to this particular pl place where he shot it because of the nature of the, the V, the stone V that he's sort of sitting in, uh, the sharpshooter is sitting in, uh, was sitting in. The uh, uh, gardener puts a knapsack under the man's head so his head would be raised and the viewers of the photograph could see the features of his face. And there's a, a, a rifle leaning against the stone enclosure there. And that rifle was also supplied by Gardner, who carried it always as a prop to use in his photographs. So the photograph seems to be telling a story of the, of the, of the um, uh, death of this rebel sharpshooter, justified death in the case, in the way the photograph's rhetoric is presented. And it's a story that, that basically Gardner created uh, in order to make the point that he hoped, hoped to make. A second uh, well-known photograph is one called Harvest of Death, uh, made at Gettysburg by uh, Timothy O'Sullivan, another of the people that worked for, uh, for Brady. And the Harvest of Death is a panorama of the uh, killing fields of Gettysburg. And there are perhaps 20 or so bodies strewn about in the field of the photograph, bootless. They've had their shoes removed by someone, or some of them had their shoes removed, presumably by, by uh, uh, marauders. And uh, it has a fuzzy background, so it has a kind of differential focus, and there's a horseman very dimly seen in the distance, as if he's one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And again, the caption tells us that these are rebel soldiers who had been killed in the Battle of Gettysburg. Probably they were not rebel soldiers, they were probably Union soldiers, but this was not something that could play very well in the North. So these rather grotesque photographs are often made to uh, be, uh, by the caption, made to be about uh, 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 Confederate soldiers rather than Union soldiers. And the captions imply then the kind of righteousness of the Union cause and its, uh, uh, it, its certainty of triumphing. Yeah, in the end. Oh, thank you. Uh, John Rayburn. Um, and now, uh, Ed, Ed Folsom, let's go to you. You're a Whitman scholar, and, and we've had a chance to do some of these programs before. I've asked you about various parts of Whitman's life, but um, I'd like particularly to have you tell us about Whitman as, um, as a guy who sort of went through this period of the war, obviously uh, a younger man. I know he was a nurse in, in uh, the war, wanted to help out in some way, saw things that, of course, no one ever expects to see. And, and I'd like to know what it did to his view of Americans, of just give us a picture of who he was before the war, during the war, and after the war. Okay, sure. Um, Whitman um, uh, came to Washington, D.C. Um, when he was uh, searching for his uh, wounded brother, George, who had been wounded at the Battle of Fredericksburg. And Whitman decided, as you could do at that time, to go right to the front and go to the battlefield uh, find his brother. He did find his brother who had been wounded with a cheek wound but was recovering. And when Whitman saw the uh, carnage 
at uh, Fredericksburg. The image he recalls is walking into the mansion that had been turned into uh, a hospital and passing by a stack of amputated limbs, um, a cartload of a wagon, he said. And um, when he experienced that carnage of that uh, uh, battlefield, he rode with injured troops back to Washington and basically just set up life in Washington, D.C. Uh, he wrote uh, soon after that to Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he said, um, America has already uh, uh, gone to hospital in its fair youth, and it's been brought to this whited sepulcher we call Washington, D.C., a place of death, amputation, and wounds. And the nation's capital is... Uh, you all know, was uh, during the Civil War years really turned into a hospital. Uh, the U.S. Patent Office became a hospital. Uh, Whitman was, was in the Patent Office uh, when soldiers were lying in beds among the, the uh, little display cases of uh, uh, often weapons that uh, had... had uh, been invented and uh, patented and were on display in the patent office and then all around in the shadows of those of those uh, display cases uh, at night, Whitman would talk about, were the other cases, the Civil War cases, the wounded soldiers that were the results of those inventions. Uh, and John so uh, eloquently described the uh, the way photographs worked during the Civil War. Uh, Whitman was a, a friend of Matthew Brady's and a very close friend of Alexander Gardner's, who, uh, who loved Whitman's book, Leaves of Grass. And um, Whitman was very taken with Civil War photographs because those photographs, as John indicated, really were primarily photographs of preparations and after effects. Uh, you didn't see the battles. You saw preparations for battles, and you saw the after-effects of battles. And thousands of Civil War photographs uh, record Civil War hospitals in Washington, D.C., rows and rows of amputated um, patients with amputations, uh, as there were thousands of medical photographs taken during the Civil War. It's a whole other genre of Civil War photographs, the photographs that were taken of, of uh, some of the most outrageous wounds um, so that uh, they could be studied by medical science. And um, uh, those photographs uh, in only relatively recent years have been finally sort of cataloged and, and made available. Uh, Whitman was haunted by the after-effects of the war, and he spent his time uh, as a clerk in Washington, D.C., earning money so that he could spend his evenings and oftentimes entire nights in the Civil War hospitals, where, by his own estimates, he probably visited 100,000 soldiers over the course of the couple of years he was in, in D.C. during the war. Um, it changed everything for him. It changed his poetry dramatically. It uh, changed uh, the faith that he had developed in what I 
think of as a kind of composting faith, a faith in the idea that there really is no death because death is always being composted back into life. And um, the Civil War tested that faith in ways that Whitman initially could not imagine. How could this landscape of the U.S. absorb 800,000 corpses in such a short time? Uh, The nation had not only been brought to hospital in its fair youth, it had been turned into a graveyard in its fair youth. And many of those graves were shallow graves, many of the soldiers were never buried at all. And Whitman, by the end of the war, was beginning to question whether or not there really could be a future growing out of a past that was that brutal, that massively filled with death. He talked about how from now on, for America's future, every grain of wheat we eat, every breath we take in, will have the blood and the atoms of those soldiers. There's no place in the American landscape, Whitman said, that you can go after the war, that you are not day by day living literally off of that death. And that for him would be the challenge for the rest of his life, was how to try to create or imagine an America, a United States that had now, as is often noted, become a singular rather than a plural noun after the war, how the United States could develop into a nation that would be worthy of that massive sacrifice of young life. And that would really be the, um, the direction of the rest of Whitman's career. Well, and I think many of us are familiar with the poem that he wrote after the death of Abraham, the murder of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, could you talk just a little bit about O Captain, My Captain? Well, O Captain, My Captain was a, a poem that uh, became so popular, actually, uh, at the end of uh, uh, Reconstruction. Um, in the years right after the Civil War, until Reconstruction, the Whitman poem that was anthologized and read in schools everywhere was a poem called Come Up From the Field's Father, uh, a poem about uh, a uh, a family in Ohio, on a farm in Ohio, who uh, get a letter from their son, Pete. Uh, But the mother, when she sees the letter, immediately knows that the son is dead. And the way she knows that the son is dead is that the letter, even though it's signed with Pete's name, is not written in Pete's hand. There's a disconnect between the name and the hand that wrote it. And that is enough for the mother to turn the letters into simply a blur. And she too, soon after, dies. the father who's called up from the the fields and Whitman is playing on how America's agricultural fields as at Gettysburg had become its killing fields as well. That uh, the father who's called up from the harvesting fields of Ohio is being given news from the other farm fields further east. And those fields are bringing a harvest of death. And um, 
that poem uh, captured for many Americans trying to deal with that grief in the ten years after the war. Uh, it, it, it was the Whitman poem that uh, uh, many, many students wrote about at that time. There, there, I've seen probably 20 or 25 letters written by students in the 1860s and 70s that were sent to Whitman saying, you know, this poem has, has kept my family sane uh, as we've tried to deal with, with uh, the death that had surrounded us. Um, then, um, uh, oh, Captain, my Captain, uh, as the uh, post-Reconstruction years began to construct Abraham Lincoln as the great emancipator, um, became a very popular poem. So popular that by the end of Whitman's life, he said he wished he'd never written the damn thing because <laughs> it's all that anyone ever wanted to hear from him. Uh, mm -hmm. He would always be asked to recite, oh, Captain, my Captain. The other poem he wrote for Lincoln, uh, uh, the Lincoln Elegy, uh, When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed, which I think is a far greater poem, never mentions Lincoln uh, by name, neither does, oh, Captain, my Captain. Um, oh, Captain, My Captain seems to be a poem that uh, Whitman writes in the persona of a sailor who is dealing with that notion that the captain who was steering the ship is no longer there. Uh, when Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed is a much more intimate and personal poem, I think, for Whitman. Um, he was visiting his mother in... Uh, Brooklyn when Lincoln was assassinated, and it was in April, the lilacs were blooming early, uh, when he went outside after hearing the news, uh, he went into his mother's dooryard, and in his grief, he inhaled in that inhalation of grief, he smelled the lilacs, and those lilacs became for him always associated from that point on, that smell of lilacs in the beginning of spring, with Lincoln's death and through Lincoln's death with the death of all the 800,000 soldiers of the war. Uh, it's a poem that uh, T.S. Eliot, uh, uh, though he had a lot of problems with Whitman, uh, always admired that poem. And uh, you think of the beginning of the wasteland where April was the cruelest month breeding lilacs out of the dead land. Um, it's straight out of Whitman. Yeah. Wow. Tremendous uh, information and, and insight you've given us. Thank you all so much for being up here. Ed Folsom, Kathleen Diffley, and John Rayburn, thank you. <laughs> this is World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we invite you to join us as a member of the live audience for our next program on February 15th, when the topic is genetics and new technologies. That program will take place here in this room on Central Campus, the Senate Chamber of Old Capitol Museum. All of these World Canvas programs are broadcast on UITV and KRUI, and they can be accessed anywhere in the world through iTunes and the Public Radio Exchange. So now I've been joined on stage by Wayne Rickenbacker. Great pleasure to have you here, Wayne. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Um, and Wayne, you are a retired physician and surgeon, uh, recently retired from the hospitals and clinics here at the university. And I know that you've had a long fascination with the Civil War, just a personal fascination. And of course, you bring your physician's eyes to which, what you learn about battlefields and medicine in the, in the late part of the 19th century. And um, 
Uh, I wonder if you'll tell us a little bit about your interest in this period and some recent work you've done on uh, Stonewall Jackson and his demise on the battlefield. Well, I think I, I'm a cardiac surgeon to begin with, so the history of cardiac surgery dates back only about 40 or 50 years. So to look back a century and a half is actually very challenging for, from the standpoint that this is uh, the numbers of developments that have occurred in medical care, both of civilians and injured soldiers, has changed dramatically in that period of time, far more than what's happened with cardiac surgery just in the past few decades. So I think my interest began, as almost everyone's did, with childhood trips to battlefields. Uh, but it has evolved from the, into the interest in the medical management of the soldiers. Uh, my interest recently, or of the past few years, has been with Stonewall Jackson, and that was the topic of a, a talk I gave last evening at the History of Medicine Society. And my fascination with Stonewall Jackson was not only Stonewall Jackson, who was a uh, terrific uh, military tactician, but also his surgeon, Hunter McGuire, who is every bit as accomplished and went on to a very distinguished career after he cared for Jackson in his final days. So there is obviously a great deal written about that, that episode. Uh, and then ferreting out some of the details became actually a source of fascination for me. And I'll put a plug in for the libraries here. They're extraordinarily helpful in finding some of these very obscure uh, resources and some of the, the reprints from that era. Hunter McGuire, the surgeon, was a very prolific author, and he wrote a great deal about that incident. Uh, and then of his accomplishments later in life, some of the, of the techniques and, and things that he brought to the field of surgery after the Civil War. Uh, so it made it very easy to look through that and try to, to sort out the events of that time and better understand the care that Jackson received. Because Jackson was shot, uh, so there was a surgical aspect to his care, but then at the same time, his ultimate demise was related to an episode of pneumonia, so you had a medical component as well. So it covered the spectrum, which... Yeah. Well, we heard a, a little bit of a description of, um, of uh, the need for hospitals, uh, you know, uh, taking over a, a home that happened to be near a, a battle location and suddenly a home or a church or uh, some kind of other public or private building would be taken on as, as hospital. And uh, you were explaining to me in a prior conversation that um, this, this battlefield medicine was a, the, the level of carnage of this war was something no one could have imagined or prepared for, at least they didn't, and, and had to do a lot of thinking on their feet. Well, it was, it was something that was entirely unexpected by the medical community. Um, medical education at that time was very poorly defined. Uh, it was very inconsistent from institution to institution. And as far as battlefield surgery and battlefield care went, it began with just the very mundane parts of, of camp management. There was very little understanding of sanitation, good water supply, location of latrines. And so the initial uh, responsibility of the medical commanders was to develop a, an ability to, to set up camps, understand the sanitation aspects. And then once the campaigning began, there was this need for evacuation of soldiers from the field of battle after the battle of first battle of Manassas. There was really no understanding of the need to remove the, the injured soldiers from the, the field of combat. And, and in fact, many of those soldiers that were injured in that first conflict lay on the field for two or three days. Those that could ambulate actually walked back to Washington on their own. Uh, so a system of evacuation with litters and litter bearers and ultimately ambulances had to be developed. Uh, the 
ability to manage soldiers near the battlefield had to be developed so that every time a campaign was in, in progress, the medical commanders had to determine sites of potential care for those soldiers near what was thought to be a battlefield that may occur. So they would locate, uh, hopefully within easy distance of a battlefield to facilitate the evacuation, but at the same time have a protected environment over the top of a hill or behind some other structure that would protect the building or the site at which the soldiers would be initially cared for. So there was an evacuation plan set up and then the care provided at these aid stations or, or forward posts, if you will, uh, so that the patients could be triaged to some extent and then the soldiers transported after their immediate care and resuscitation back to more of a general hospital type of environment. But transportation, obviously, at that time was far more difficult using horse-drawn ambulances, uh, and it made it very difficult. Um, many of the, the surgical, or much of the surgical care provided in the South was compromised by, and we heard earlier about the embargo on uh, supplies and equipment, and, and it was a very difficult uh, situation for them. There was very little in the way of medical textbooks for military surgical wounds and military surgery management. Uh, some of the materials needed for the surgical care, as well as the, the pharmaceuticals, were simply unavailable. Uh, so all of those presented significant challenges. It wasn't just the actual care of an injured soldier. Well, we've heard a couple of people reference the, the uh, you know, wagon loads of uh, amputated uh, limbs. And uh, tell us about the need for amputation at, at this time and what kind of um, anesthesia um, patients would have been given, if anything at all. Well, most of the soldiers who were actually evacuated alive from the field of battle sustained extremity injuries. So the most common operation performed in the Civil War was the amputation, and that's the one we hear most about today. I think there's a common misconception that, that the soldiers were operated upon without the benefit of anesthesia, and in fact that is not true. It's a very rare circumstance where anesthesia was not employed. Uh, we heard about the Crimean War a little earlier, and actually general anesthesia was developed in the late 1840s and then used extensively during the Crimean War in the, in the mid-1850s. In civilian practice, ether was usually the anesthetic agent of choice, what we call the open drop technique, where it's the uh, ether was dripped onto a cloth over the soldier's nose and mouth. Uh, in fact, in the Civil War, the agent of choice was chloroform. And the reason that chloroform was employed was that it was less flammable, it would not explode, as ether would. And understand that most of the fighting occurred during the day and the operating occurred oftentimes at night uh, or inside a structure by artificial lighting, candles or lanterns. So you could not use an, a flammable anesthetic. Uh, the other is a chloroform is just simply smaller and you needed less of it to provide anesthesia. So it was more easily transported in larger quantities. Um, there is another, I think, part of that misconception about surgery being performed without the use of an anesthetic is, is oftentimes the soldiers were taken outside of a structure. So if, for example, a, an aid station was someone's home or a barn or a, a church, they would take the doors off hinges and move them outside uh, to serve as a makeshift operating table. The reason they would operate outside if the weather was not inclement was that the lighting was obviously far better if surgery was being performed during the day. Uh, and so everyone passing by could actually see what was happening. And it was a fairly dramatic event for someone who was non-medical to, to watch an amputation. Uh, and I'm not an anesthesiologist, but there's 
two levels of anesthesia. There's an excitement phase and then the deeper phase of anesthesia. And usually uh, the soldiers did not receive enough anesthetic to get them to that deeper phase. And actually that was probably deliberate, but turned out to their benefit. Uh, these operations could be performed very swiftly. An amputation took on average 15 minutes or less, uh, so that there was no need for a significant amount of anesthesia. But even getting into that excited phase of anesthesia, the analgesia was there, the loss of consciousness was there, the inability to recall was there, uh, but yet the patient was not flaccid. The soldier would still be excitable and as a result need to be held down to some extent, which gave the impression that in fact they were not receiving yeah. the benefit of an anesthetic. Um, mm, yeah, wow. Well, could you tell us a little bit about uh, Stonewall Jackson, how, how he was injured? Uh, very strange event there, and then what happened in those following days, and why this is of interest to the medical community. The, so Stonewall Jackson was the commander of the Second Corps of the Army of Northern Virginia, and in the Chancellorville battle in the spring of 1863, uh, there was a very audacious plan, and actually, for those of you with an interest, uh, you probably many of you know the, the story, but Lee divided his army not once but twice, and this was with consultation with uh, Stonewall Jackson. And so divided the army and moved a long distance. Uh, Stonewall Jackson was known for moving his troops great distances over uh, rugged terrain, and actually they were called the Foot Cavalry by, by many others. They were a very proud group of soldiers. Uh, but the goal was to get behind and attack the right flank of the, the Union Army at, at uh, Chancellorsville which they did very successfully. And it was late in the day when they completed this long so-called flank march and came upon the rear of the, of the Union line as the Union line was preparing their supper. In fact, they were preparing supper and only became aware of these 28,000 Confederate soldiers behind them uh, when all of the animals started to run out of the woods in front of the Confederate Army or the Second Corps. Uh, the fighting started late 5.15 or so in the afternoon on May 2nd of 1863, and it was only stopped when the sun went down and in this very dense underbrush, it was conducted in the wilderness, that's a very dense part of Virginia, and the battle lines became very confused, sun went down, visibility was lost, but Jackson was a very aggressive uh, soldier and wished to press the advantage because they could hear the federal troops building their breastwork, and they're going to hear them chopping down trees just 100, 150 yards away. So he decided to reconnoiter in front of his line and was actually misidentified as Union cavalry in the dark uh, with all the horsemen with his staff, and there was, they were fired upon by their own troops. Um, he was shot actually in the right hand and then twice in the left arm. Uh, the worst injury in the left arm was near the shoulder where it fractured the humerus, the long bone in the upper arm, as well as severed the brachial artery, the blood supply to the arm. Uh, he received immediate first aid on the field and was transported quickly out of the field. Uh, and early the next morning, by 2 a.m., had had his left arm amputated under general anesthesia with chloroform by Hunter McGuire, his core surgeon. He actually recovered from that operation relatively well for a day or so. Robert E. Lee wanted him evacuated for fear that he would be captured by the nearby federal troops, and so he was loaded into an ambulance and endured about two days after his amputation a very difficult journey, 20-some uh, miles to a plantation further southeast 
the goal being to try to move him ultimately to Richmond for his convalescence. But about four days or so after his amputation, he developed what is generally thought to be pneumonia. And at that time, in the pre-antibiotic era, there was no real treatment for pneumonia. And the, as you read the daily accounts of the people that were with him, he, from Thursday of that week through until Sunday when he ultimately died, uh, it's just a slow, steady decline with increased respiratory distress and the picture of sepsis uh, with, again, no antibiotics or the ability to treat that, no ability to to provide him with pulmonary toilet, none of the things that we would do today to treat a patient with pneumonia. He ultimately died on Sunday afternoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, briefly, just before we, we need to leave this segment, um, can you give an example of some, some of the one or two things that um, really advanced medical care or care on the battlefield as a result of what was experienced here in the Civil War? Well, the, I, I think probably the most important one uh, one of many is the, the ability to move soldiers quickly off the battlefield. Um, the system of evacuation, a system was developed in the north by Letterman. In the south, it's, it's oftentimes accredited to McGuire. Uh, the ability to provide immediate first aid, move the soldier off the field of battle. There were identified core of individuals responsible for moving these soldiers. The development of a, a first aid station, if you will, infirmaries that were near the battle lines, I think. Uh, and then the very quick, they recognized that the results of amputation were far better if performed within 24 hours to 48 hours, as opposed to what was called secondary amputation, uh, the results beyond 48 hours. The survival was much higher in that early period of time. Um, these are all sort of tenets of, of military care today, the rapid evacuation, resuscitation, and immediate treatment to give you a better outcome. Yeah. Wow, could listen to to you talk about this for hours. Thank you so much, Dr. Rickenbacker. Please uh, thank our guest. (laughs) And I'll invite our last uh, group of guests up up to join us now. Once again, this is World Canvas for anyone who's just joined the program. I'm Joan Kerr, and hi. And we're inviting uh, just now Sylvia Hollis, who's next to me here on stage, Heather Cooper next to her, uh, Corey Creekmere, and Leslie Schwalm uh, have all just joined us. And in this final segment, we're going to take a look at this era from an African-American perspective and spend some time discussing film, television, and popular culture depictions of the Civil War. Uh, Sylvia Hollis, uh, just next to me here, is a PhD candidate in the history department. Welcome, thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Much. You bet. And Heather Cooper, also a PhD candidate in history. Uh, Corey Creekmere is an associate professor of English and the head of film studies here at the University of Iowa. Thanks for being here, Corey. Thank you. And uh, you already know history professor Alizé Schwamm. Um, so I think I'd like to start with you first, Sylvia, if I may. And I know that you're studying this period from an African American perspective, and. Um, what were the goals of African-Americans? From the very beginning, I want to back up just a little bit. So before the war even started, with the election of President Lincoln, there was a, a rumble throughout plantations around the country and also within the northern states amongst, Af- amongst African-Americans that they hoped that this would be an opportunity for the end of slavery. They hoped that also for people in the north that this would be an opportunity for the advancement of equality throughout the nation. And so that that 1860 election was pivotal, but of course there's a much, much longer history of African-Americans striving for um, the end of slavery and for equality in the country. But from the standpoint of this idea of a rupture, um, which is, I agree, a very important theme, 
There was a quest for autonomy and ability to be able to take care of themselves. Uh, autonomy most uh, commonly being understood as land, an opportunity to have their own land and to work their land and have their kinship structures, their family and extended kin be a part of that process and not having it, um, not having to live under um, people telling them and teaching them how to work land mm -hmm. and do the things that they had um, grown well accustomed to doing long before they came to um, what is now the United States. In terms of African-American perspective, I really like the idea of thinking about it as perspectives. You have the enslaved people on themselves, but you also have freeborn populations in the North, which Leslie touched on, and uh, their perspective was different, although I don't think that I could say that any African-Americans in the country weren't open to pressing for or weren't adamant uh, abolitionists themselves, but you also had fugitives um, who I would put in a separate category because um, they occupied uh, the spaces in the North as well as in the South and given the variety of their differences and backgrounds also helped in very important ways to complicate the narrative of this rupture. And I can talk about that more mm -hmm. at another point. If you like. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. Good, good to hear that first point. And Heather, let me go to you too, because I know that you're also looking at the way um, the collective memory among African Americans uh, uh, looks at the war. Um, please tell us what your thoughts are on that. Um, well, uh, historians uh, of Civil War memory, um, especially David Blight, have um, kind of laid this uh, narrative out whereby after the war, um, a very racially and regionally divided memory um, of the war and it, what's significant about its legacy develops. Ultimately, um, the nation moves toward a narrative uh, and memory of the war that emphasizes reconciliation, um, the coming together of the Union again, the shared bravery and sacrifice of soldiers and people on the home front. Um, and this is a narrative that often um, leaves out or minimizes the issue of slavery, um, the contributions of African Americans to the war. Um, the African American community, uh, not surprisingly, develops a memory of the war um, that emphasizes emancipation as its most important consequence. Um, and within the African American community, one of the one of the sort of um, most well known. Um, sort of rites of memory would be the Emancipation Day celebrations, which began, um, well, in some ways, which, which predated the war itself in terms of celebrating um, emancipation in the British West Indies um, and uh, continued um, at, at different points during the war and then for decades. This, these, these sort of Emancipation Day celebrations um, were, were public events in which the entire community participated. Um, but they were often events that um, emphasized sort of the, uh, the sacrifice of African-American soldiers and the claim to citizenship and national belonging that that military service um, created for men and women um, in the African-American population. And um, I was just going to talk a little bit about um, some aspects of African-American memory that have brought more attention um, to women's contributions to the war, as well as some that I think have really, uh, have not been discussed as much, but have had potentially the chance to sustain the memory of slavery, not just in the African-American community, but also um, among the white population, not only in the United States, but also um, in Great Britain. So. Um, First of all, um, the Jubilee Singers, um, which uh, the original Fist Jubilee Singers grew out of um, a uh, 
sorry, uh, grew out of a, a group at Fisk University and began touring um, in New England and then in Great Britain um, in the early 1870s and continued to do so under different, various different management um, through the 1890s. And um, essentially, I don't know how much people know about the troupe, but they um, became well known for their rendition of slave spirituals. And they were incredibly popular, performed to thousands of audiences, and um, were really instrumental in uh, making uh, those audience members, which were largely white, uh, remember uh, this issue of slavery. And most of what I know about the Jubilee Singers and those performances are actually from the reviews that were written by people present. And an amazing thing about them is that uh, people in the audience really speak about being literally transported to imagined scenes on the plantation. When they hear these songs, which are not explicitly talking about slavery, they imagine themselves transported to scenes on the plantation to a mother suffering as she knows her child is about to be taken, to families separated, etc. So the songs um, were really powerful in terms of keeping people's um, sort of memory of that aspect of slavery alive. Um, and because they were able to perform to such a sort of wide swath of people, I think that this had, had a potential to sort of keep the issue of slavery um, sort of at the forefront at a time when other aspects of national memory were moving away from it. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah, thank you very much, Heather. Very interesting. Well, that's kind of a nice lead-in, Corey, to talk about films and later television and so on, and portrayals of this whole era that many of us have, have uh, witnessed you know, during our lives. Um, take us back in film history. Well, that's right. I mean, there's a connection, because um, all films about the Civil War are recreations of the Civil War. Uh, picking up on, on John Rayburn, um, it's... it's it's interesting to think about the significant difference it makes that the Civil War was photographed but not filmed. Yeah. It takes place in the gap between the invention of photography and the arrival of cinema. But we now have an over 100-year history of filming recreations of the Civil War for dramatic purposes, and they, they say a lot about how we, we remember that event and, and how we mythologize that event. Um, they begin almost immediately with the arrival of cinema. Uh, most people will know... Uh, the major marker of this uh, with 1915's Birth of a Nation. But Griffith and other, D.W. Griffith and other filmmakers made Civil War films prior to that, and they're coming out of a tradition of stage plays and, and, and fiction about the Civil War. Um, it, it isn't an exaggeration, I think, to say that the Civil War is the crucial war in the history of American cinema. Um, the other wars will get represented too, but if you think about it, you you'd think it might be the Revolutionary War, but we don't have a lot of films, or certainly well-known films, popular films about the Revolutionary War. You'd think we would have a lot of uh, Jefferson films, and you know, Ben Franklin films, and you know, Adams films, but we don't, but we have a lot of Lincoln films. Hmm. And obviously we have one current. Mm -hmm. um, and we also have the sort of bizarre Civil War fantasy Django Unchained currently. So, so even this old history that goes back you know, to at least a, a uh, complex, to put it mildly, touchstone like uh, Birth of a Nation continues to the present. Um, when I say it's crucial, it, it's partially because of the status of Birth of a Nation, which um, one could argue, I won't have time to do it convincingly here, but um, is, is 
one of, if not the most important American films ever made, in that it signals the future of American cinema being uh, feature-length films, um, films that are going to play to middle-class audiences rather than a working-class audience. Um, it signals some of the, the aesthetic and formal ambitions of cinema. And for film scholars like myself, it's a nightmare. You know, it's one of the most odious, offensive films ever made. It's deeply racist. Uh, it it uh, celebrates the, the rise of the Klan. Um, it was originally based on a novel called The Klansman by Thomas Dixon, which was only a story of Reconstruction, and Griffith added the Civil War to it. The first half is the Civil War, second half is Reconstruction. But it's, it's, it's useful in all sorts of ways to demonstrate that the, you know, the debates around race and the, around the Civil War were not over by any means, that there, there were still, and, and some of the most extreme views of um, the meaning of the Civil War are still being worked out. For a while, there was a kind of excusing of the film by saying, well, at that time, people thought these things, and you know, now we've come you know, beyond that. But it was protested from the beginning. Um, the rise of the modern NAACP was, was in part around protest by African-Americans of, of that film. Um, jumping ahead, um, to, just to, to indicate the significance of the Civil War in American film history, Jumping ahead to 1939, we get Gone with the Wind, one of the most popular, successful American films of all time, and kind of a culmination of what Griffith made partially possible, the rise of the American studio system. Um, but, uh, you know, by that time, we get this highly romantic um, uh, notion of the Civil War, in which race obviously plays a role, but is downplayed in certain ways. It's really the story of the, the white characters. Um, and, and what you get there, and I'm going to even pull this up to Lincoln in the present, uh, Spielberg's Lincoln, is this regular pattern of movement between historical representation, the spectacle of, of history. So for um, uh, Gone with the Wind, the, you know, the burning of Atlanta, and the, the sort of spectacular quality of that is something to witness on screen. And the melodrama of the, the more private stories. Often stories, um, this is a model that Griffith um, sets in place, around uh, fictional characters. And so you have these narratives in which fictional characters interact with world historical figures like Lincoln. Mm -hmm. So Lincoln, Lee, Grant are characters in some of these films, but they're often not the main characters. Now that's where Lincoln is different. Mm -hmm. you know, Lincoln is the main character. But I would say one of the things about uh, Lincoln, the recent film, is that it also participates in this kind of balancing act between history, the narrative it tells of, of uh, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation uh, and the Amendment, um, but it's also at some level the story of you know, Abe and Mary. You know, it's one of, it gives us a sense of what that marriage was like that we don't have access to. Uh, and so I do think one of the things that has, has made the continual representation of the Civil War fascinating to people is that sort of movement between the intimate and the private and the individual, as we've talked about, these compelling stories of this you know, this soldier or this family, and then the big sweep of history that connects mm -hmm. to it. And so films have worked along those ways. Um, I should mention, you know, among many other films, in, just quickly in terms of TV, to me the most fascinating um, uh, link of television and the Civil War is the Ken Burns documentary, mm -hmm. not actually the fictional attempts to, to treat the Civil War in, um, on television, but that documentary that galvanized the American public. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, PBS shows documentaries all the time, but that was such a phenomenon that people cared about. And one of the things um, he's 
clearly was at the source of that was the use of of letters and the decision not to have a sort of um, you know, a single voice telling us this authoritative mm-hmm. history, but all the actors' voices mm-hmm. that that uh, um, come in to give us some sense of, of those historical figures, and also, um, I guess, if historians could debate this, the you know, the telling of that story by choosing um, individuals, mm-hmm. uh, including Grant, including Lee, um, including Lincoln, of course, but also some of the the stories that were pulled out of the Civil War. Um, and so you do have there even, um, you know, even, even though that's not a fictionalization, uh, you have it participating, I think, in that same dynamic of the sort of intimate and the personal mm-hmm. and the, the world historical. Yeah, yeah, well, thank you. Well, uh, Leslie, let me draw you into this discussion, too, about any of these things we've been talking about. But um, I don't know if you have thoughts related to this film and uh, television can we spend the next two hours talking yeah. <laughs> about Spielberg's Lincoln? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I appreciate your take on this, Corey, on the film. Uh, uh, I both love the film and I hate it. I, I love <laughs> the, uh, the portrayal, Daniel Day-Lewis's portrayal of Lincoln as a very complicated person and the portrayal of, of the real politics of the 13th Amendment, the dirty politics, the pragmatic politics um, I thought that was marvelous, but the problem with that film um, is there are no enslaved people seizing their freedom in that film. And what we don't realize through that film is that in many ways it didn't matter what those men in the U.S. Capitol did. Enslaved people had already seized their freedom. They were already destroying slavery in the South. They had been doing this from uh, the very beginning of the war. Um, Our best estimates, which are very rough, um, are that at least 400,000 enslaved people out of a total population of 4 million, at least 400,000 fled slavery during the course of the war, um, made their way to Union lines. And uh, ultimately, uh, by the summer of 63, were able, some of them, to don the uniform of um, Union soldiers and fight their masters on the field. Um, Enslaved people insisted that this would be a war to end slavery. And they pushed Union policy in ways that Lincoln certainly never intended to go and and much of his cabinet uh, intended not to go. Um, So that's... um, one of my major concerns with that film is that we lose that uh, very important, powerful context of how freedom is seized during the war. And this brings us actually back to Iowa. Um, uh, We have a tendency as historians, I think, and as an American public, uh, to assume that the story of slavery's destruction is a story located in the Confederacy. And uh, that's actually not quite the case. About a quarter of those 400,000 enslaved people who decided to seize their freedom during the war, about a quarter of them, not only made their way to Union lines in the Confederacy, um, but they also made their way north. About 17,000 of them up the Atlantic seaboard, Um, and the remainder into the uh, Midwest from Ohio into Iowa. Iowa actually um, was a recipient of over 2,300 former slaves during the course of the war who 
made their way up the Mississippi Valley either on foot or uh, on Union ships or uh, by wagon or horseback and uh, insisted on uh, making their way out of slavery, leaving slavery behind, and assuming a role as free citizens uh, in the North, where they expected to be treated as free people and as citizens. And in presenting themselves to Iowa, really forced Iowans to realize that the story of emancipation was an Iowa story. This wasn't just a story about Mississippi. This was an Iowa story. Um, One example, in 1863, one of those former slaves who made his way to Des Moines, Archie Webb, found himself served by the local sheriff with a notice that black migration into the state was illegal, had been illegal since 1851, and they were serving him notice. He had to, he, he faced, in essence, deportation from the state of Iowa. Now, this actually makes its way to the state Supreme Court and brings an end to that law prohibiting black migration into the state. But this is one example of how former slaves brought freedom into Iowa and, and really fought for the rights, not only of freedom, just basic things like mobility, but also fought for the right to vote, for the right to serve on juries, to be heard by a jury of your peers. And they fought segregation, which was so common in Iowa. The schools were segregated, public transportation was segregated, hotels were segregated. And I want to make a special point that it was, uh, in many cases, African-American women who who were making this fight. So if we look at the court cases, where school segregation and segregation in public transportation was challenged. Oftentimes it was mothers and women who were taking these issues to the court. So while we have uh, Iowa's uh, black regiment being mustered out and demanding the right to vote, after all, they had assumed the responsibilities of citizenship. Now they wanted the rights of citizenship. We also have women Um, insisting on their rights to be full-fledged mothers and to be able to make sure that their children were well-educated. So this is when I I say that um, the story of slavery and freedom and race was central to the war, it wasn't central because it was all going on in the Confederacy. It was going on in every northern state that had to confront these issues. Wow. Well, I think we're going to leave tonight's discussion there. This has been so interesting. Thank you, Sylvia Hollis and Heather Cooper, Corey Creekmuir, and Leslie Schwamm. Wow, what a night. Thanks to all of our guests and all of you for being here. Uh, as you know, this is World Canvas. Uh, I'm Joan Kerr, and uh, we work with University of Iowa Television. We're very grateful for their technical help. And uh, this program is sponsored by International Programs, by UITV, by KRUIFM, and Information Technology Services. As I said earlier, our next program is February 15th in this room, and the topic is genetics and new technologies and I hope you can join us for that so uh, thanks to my production colleagues Caitlin McBride, Amy Green, Connie Shea, Shana Oley, Lauren Katalinich and Christopher Clough and again to UITV Uh, that's it for tonight thank you for coming and uh, we'll see you next time good night